Welcome to the Charter Cities Podcast. I'm Curtis Lockhart. On each episode, we invite a leading expert to discuss key trends in global development and the world of cities, including the role charter cities and innovative governance will play in humanity's new urban age. For more information, please follow us on social media or visit chartercitiesinstitute.org. Welcome to The Forecast, a four-episode podcast series by Bravo Cities. I'm here in wonderful Montenegro in Lusticia Bay with Vitalik Buterin for the first episode. Vitalik, thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much, Mark. It's good to be here. And so to start, we're at Zuzalu. I arrived about two weeks ago, but the event has been running for about six weeks now. Vitalik, what is Zuzalu? So it's a crazy social experiment where we basically brought together about 200 people from a combination of the Ethereum space, some like bio and longevity hackers, people interested in building new cities and societies, and a lot of the adjacent communities. And we basically got people to come and live together in one place for two months. So the idea for this came to be about six months ago. And like, I had been thinking a lot about both ideas around you know, things like network states. Like I read and reviewed Balaji's book last year, as well as some of the other writings and speeches by other people around somewhat similar ideas, but also thinking about like crypto cities and whether or not there's ways to actually apply different crypto technologies, which includes blockchains, also includes zero-knowledge proofs and other things in uh, more real-world contexts. And so I thought that the conversation around a lot of those topics had been like very theoretical and lots of long screeds and lots of you know long podcasts replying to long screeds. <laughs> but uh, I thought that, hey, yeah, let's actually do a live experiment. And like the nice thing about the size and the length is that it's still a significant step from things that are usually done, right? Like conferences are big, but they last a week. And this is almost 10 weeks. And then hacker houses are long, but they're 10 to 20 people. And this is 200 people. So it's larger and it's large enough that you can do things that you can't do at smaller scales. Like we've taken over a restaurant for part of the day and Milk had them serve a customized like healthy breakfast uh, buffet that was modeled on the Brian Johnson blueprint menu. But also there's room for different sub-communities. But at the same time, like it's still manageable in size and like it's not going from, you know, zero to a hundred thousand, right? So try to be in this like stepping stone in the middle and basically seeing like we know what are some things that we can do at this scale and what kinds of things can we learn what have you learned hmm a lot of it is like tacit implicit knowledge which is difficult to summarize i mean one is just like from what i can tell the format works like there's a lot of people who are willing to come and a lot of people who you know once they came they were happy to have come and they're happy that you know it's lasted as long as it has and they've made a lot of friends a lot of good connections that were really helpful to things that they were working on already or or things that they wanted to do it was a challenge to organize but i think like the number of things that blew up is definitely less than i was expecting so yeah i think just kind of the big facts that things like this are possible and seem to work fine, I think is a big learning by itself. Some different things about the format, like for these kinds of projects, in terms of demographics, like one thing that ended up happening basically unintentionally is that we got a lot of very young people, actually like one third of the people here self-identified as digital nomads. Actually, the highest percentage I've ever seen in my life of white people who speak Chinese. Like, that was totally surprising and out of left field. <laughs> but, like, there's definitely a type, but I feel like it's still pretty diverse within the type, which is really fascinating. One of the complicated trade-offs to manage is, like, the trade-off between kind of being secluded and kind of being connected to, I think, both sort of the wider local community and to the global world. Like, a lot of people reported that they really appreciate the aspect of, like, being in one place and it's a small community and, like, everyone knows basically everyone else, or at least, like, you've seen everyone else's face a couple of times and they feel familiar. It's, like, basically like a prehistoric tribe, you know, it's about... Dunbar's number is 150 people, and this is, like, not far from 150 people. And, like, obviously, the idea that there's, like, a number is fake and it's continuous, but it's, like, still in that range, right? But then the trade-off is, like, you know, people also want to 
interact with people outside. And I mean, people are in Montenegro, they want to see and understand more of Montenegro. And they also want to see more of these like interesting communities that are coming in. But then like, if you do too much of that, then it starts getting diluted. And like that ends up like if there's too many visitors that dilutes things and it creates a bit of an unhealthy dynamic. And I think people are happy that well, like after this last week of network state and AI events where things got really hectic, um, it's calming down a bit more again. Yeah, in terms of uh, like, like some of the other sub experiments that we've done, I mean, one is like you doing crypto stuff. So the thing that like we haven't managed to do a lot of is Ethereum payments. Actually, we have done some. So when we came, there was like a local business that basically self-organized and started doing delivery to here. And they accepted, I think, I forget if it's USDC or USDT, but they accept, you know, ERC-20 stable coins. And lots of people actually use them and they get stuff delivered to here, which I thought was really cool. But otherwise, that's like, it's this fairly secluded thing where lots generally a lot of interactions at that scale are like they don't involve payments it's just people providing things to each other for free because they know each other and like when that happens it's like it's big enough to be a community but it's like not yet big enough to be an economy because it's still too community-ish to that like there's even a need for like as much formal economy as if there was an entire city and so like the economic interactions just happen between here people here and people outside mostly we have done a lot with zero knowledge proofs, right? So like I've talked a lot positively about zero knowledge proofs and this ability to prove things about pieces of information that you have without revealing like other details about what you're proving. So like here we built this app called ZooPass, which is basically got a very simple identity system. So you have your key and then there is a public registry of, I mean, obviously not private keys, the public registry of the public keys that people have. And you can prove that you're one of the keys in that registry without revealing which one you are, right? And so we've built a lot of stuff on it. Like, I mean, we use that for signing into places in person, but we use it for voting. There's a zoo polls, like basically polls that you use your knowledge proofs to vote in. There's a zoo cast, which is like a Twitter that is built on this stuff. And like people sometimes ask the spicy questions and are, you know, willing to share things about themselves. So I think it's a start. Like, I think there's a lot of places that that kind of technology can go. And I think there's a big need to try to digitize society or whatever that means and get you know efficiencies out of that whatever those are but at the same time lots of people are very understandably concerned about very rapidly losing their privacy and that's like like that's not even just you know like some obscure crypto libertarian thing like that's a very mainstream view you know like within the eu government for example right and so one of the hopes is that things like this can be part of the solution so I feel like the ZK stuff had performed probably like roughly to my expectations. I mean, the technology works well. The biggest sort of criticism is probably that like, again, like 150 people or even 200, it's still like Dunbar size that it's not like at the level where there's much like value in formalization yet. But you know, it's still done its thing and it's been helpful. On the health side, this is the other thing, right? This is one of the parts of the experiments that I was kind of inspired by sort of my own needs and struggles to some extent, right? Because I've been very into the health and the longevity thing, both for me, radical science and like, let's figure out the right way to like poke our mitochondria so that we live forever point of view, but also for me, kind of very practical. What are some things we could do to be healthier and like, have a decade more healthy life today perspective? And one of the challenges that I've always had is like, as a nomad, my lifestyle was pretty constricted, right? Like all my stuff's in a 40 liter backpack. I travel around. Pre-COVID, I was averaging 55 flights a year. In 2022, I did 39. And like that was after an intentional effort to do less. And I'm like even more intentionally trying to do less this year. But the challenge is like, there's a lot of stuff that you just can't easily do when you're busy and jumping around and you have a lot of other like things occupying your mental space. And so, hey, you know, let's take advantage of like economies of scale, right? Like, you know, when you have a hundred people, you can like if everyone wants to have a particular kind of food, you can make that kind of food happen. Like there's a lot of features of the world that are like of the sort of built world that seem like unchangeable nature when you're one person, like suddenly when you're a hundred people, you can negotiate and you can make things happen. And like just sort of breaking down that limiting belief and kind of unlocking that, I think was something that 
was one of the goals and they, like a lot of people reported really appreciating. And so, you know, we did have the healthy breakfast, a lot of different exercise groups. Like there is a strong hiking culture, running culture, cold plunging culture, and like being in that environment is very motivating. So like this was one of the things, right, that I mentioned when I was on Bology's podcast back in January, this idea that like community can provide value as a motivational environment. And like that's true for learning. It's true for exercise. It's true for a lot of things. And I feel like that's been definitely experimentally validated to a significant extent for me now, which is cool. The one thing that probably failed on the health side is what we needed is more people willing to be like full-time champions of like all of those things. Like there is often things that succeed if you have like a very dedicated champion, but fail if you don't, right? And like cold plunges had a champion, which was great. Continuing the intellectual work of figuring out like how do we get from here to a longevity focused charter city, there are champions and that's great. On the food side, not so much. On some of the other aspects, also not so much, right? And so Sometimes like you see it, like these are some of the aspects of like intentional community building that I think is really worth thinking about, like especially at these sizes, like one champion can often make or break an entire area. And it's the difference between people kind of vaguely wanting something to exist, but never actually managing to do it versus like, you know, something starting and hitting a critical mass and taking off on its own. In terms of just conversations that have happened and the value of like, Zuzulu as an intellectual space. Like we've managed to create connections between people who have come. We have, I think, managed to expose like people who live here to a lot of interesting ideas. The one thing that we've probably failed a bit at is on the learning side, like there is a reason why college courses are parallel and not in series, right? Like space repetition is the best form of learning, at least like approximately that we know. And you'll learn some math and then use some homework. And then three days later, you have another class. And then five days later, you have another one. And it's like very consistent over a long period of time. But here... What we tried is like theme weeks and like theme weeks kind of make sense from the point of view of uh, like if you care about bringing in outside speakers and if you care about like catering to both the two month community and the two week community. But the problem is like if you have theme weeks, then you get bombarded with crazy cryptography and then you forget. Right? <laughs> and uh, like I think I remember there are even studies that show that like summer vacations, like people's understanding of different subjects, like goes backwards significantly during them. Right. So if I were to do this again, I would have fewer theme weeks and more topic-based things that have a set time every week that are more ongoing and that are more well thought through, have a, like, especially thinking through the kind of beginner versus advanced distinction. Like we saw that for cryptography and probably exists to some extent for biology too. So yeah, I think, you know, main learning is like the format works and the format's like successful at attracting people and like making people at least within this one space wants to be here instead of being in New York or wherever. But, you know, there's still a lot of details and a lot of like things that can be refined, which I think is good. Yeah. I mean, last week, the question on everybody's mind was what is P doom? The week before that, it was what is a network state? So seeing the kind of community pulse as you have those weekends has been quite interesting. You mentioned Balaji a few times. And one thing that's I've changed my mind about over the past few weeks is network states. I had previously been quite skeptical of the idea because Balaji has what might be described as a very rigid formulation. You need a very strong leader. You need a single purpose, a single mission, and then to negotiate for sovereignty. And the example that he frequently brings up is Israel. And it's like, okay, look, if you have a religion that's multiple millennia old, that is facing literal genocide and has the backing of what's at the time the world's greatest superpower, the United Kingdom, like, yes, you can start a sovereign state. However, right, like that is very difficult to do. <laughs> and so I think seeing a, I mean, Balaji might not define it as a network state, but network state inspired vision, kind of the mimetic potential of the network state concept has been appropriated to a certain extent by you, by other folks, that is a little bit more community oriented, a little bit less sovereignty oriented. And seeing how that can manifest and enact change has been very interesting and has caused me to update a number of my priors. Mm. I mean, his vision is definitely rigid, but like one of the things that I've noticed is that everybody starts has been recently calling whatever thing they're working on a network state, like even if they're very far away from kind of his prescription and like his one paragraph definition. And like it's a successful meme, right? Yeah, and, very like, successful. Yeah, like it feels like 
I mean, he's not the only one who has written things in this direction. And I think like lots of people have written vaguely adjacent work over the last few decades. I mean, even like just the concept of communities formed on the internet that are driven by values, like that's been a trope of sociology for like uh, 30 years. And, you know, like that's the thing that people talk about all the time. The concept of like, can we basically... Like, does it make sense to kind of bring back aspects of what Robin Hanson would call forager life, which could involve medium-sized tribes and could involve like different lifestyles, like maybe less of this kind of atomized nuclear family type orientation. Like logically speaking, that makes kind of like sense from a very 30,000 foot view, right? Because we have the internet, we have now AI, you know, we have globalization, lots of different things are changing. And a lot of the stuff that was really optimized around like physical coordination around particular types of industries doesn't make as much sense for some people, right? Like it's important to remember that like basically everyone here is a remote worker and remote workers are 14% of the population at most. But well, the point is that there's interesting clusters of ideas. And well, the thing with seeking sovereignty, I mean, it's obviously part of a particular intellectual lineage, but the way that I personally think of the question is that I think you can like seek sovereignty for the sake of sovereignty, or you can ask like, what are the needs of the group that I'm trying to solve for? And like those may need sovereignty, they may need autonomy with stability, they may need limited autonomy in a few spheres, or you might not even need too much. And like all you need is basically like six months notice before you have to relocate somewhere else. Right. Like in terms of just like different kinds of constituencies, I mean, some of them we've seen even here, right? Like there's people who want cities to do longevity and bio research in environments where it's easier to offer experimental therapies or do trials and all of these things. And the needs of that versus the needs of like a roving nomad village are very different. A roving nomad village, you know, you're going to want to change locations because it's fun. It adds to the experience. You can learn a lot about different places. But if you want to have a longevity-focused bio village, then like you need to be, have, be in one place, right? Not only can you not move around infrastructure, like heavy infrastructure that biology depends on that easily, but also convincing one country to have favorable regulations is hard enough. You're not going to be able to do that with a new country every 60 days. Yeah, I mean, I've always been a little bit skeptical of the kind of longevity focus. My thinking is, look, in the Caribbean or in Central America, if you have $50 million and you go to three countries and say, I will invest $50 million in stem cell therapy if you pass this law, mm -hmm. you'll find a country to do it. A lot of the countries, their functions tend to be, does it create jobs? Does it create tax revenue? Does it generate massive negative publicity? Yeah. If you answer those questions is appropriate, then a lot of countries will be relatively happy to create a legal framework. I think the point that you touched on regarding kind of this as an IRL instantiation of internet communities is quite interesting and something I've been thinking a lot about recently. Like the internet is a great sorting mechanism, right? It allows for much better matching than previously took place. And what we've seen is a lot of these communities kind of emerge where people find people who really identify with them, who kind of share similar values online. And now I think particularly with COVID recently, we're starting to see that instantiate in the real world to a, a much greater extent before and seeing how these matching patterns, how these pseudo network states, whatever you might want to call them, kind of instantiate and evolve, I think is going to be really interesting to watch. Yeah, I absolutely think so. There's a lot of like very real factors that are driving people to want to be in a place other than the place that they've been historically. I mean, one of them is just cost, right? Like the cost ratio between like even Silicon Valley and like Mexico is massive. But then the US side incentives are lower than the incentives that a lot of other people are facing, right? Like if, you know, you think about some of the very authoritarian directions a lot of other large countries have been going in in the last couple of years and then russia at its most extreme of course like that's uh like 10 percent of russia's it workforce has apparently left and like one percent of the entire population right like that's huge and there's a lot of people from a lot of different places that basically either feel like they don't identify with their homeland anymore or who feel like they just can't do the kinds of things that they want to do or live the kind of life that's acceptable to them or even just like feel like they're safe in the place that they grew up and like that's a much deeper and stronger motivator than like oh like i want to you know save 2x on my tacos and not pay 43.4 percent taxes or whatever it is right like especially if you sort of branch beyond to the u.s you know often these like even 
stronger push factors that we forget about. And then, and also just like being able to bring international communities together. One of the reasons why the crypto space is such a natural fit for like Zuzalo is that the crypto space is already incredibly international and it has been for a long time. Even like Bitcoin, like mining was dominated by China, like basically almost since the beginning, right? And there was this really deep Chinese Bitcoin community. And just learning about it was one of the things that actually motivated me to like go to China for longer periods of time and try to understand it for the first time. And then, you know, there's people in the US, Ethereum itself, the main dev office is in Berlin. There's a bunch of different hubs all across Europe. And then like we have people in Taiwan and we have a space in Singapore and a space in Switzerland where the foundation is headquartered. So it's this community that's already been, I think, a lot less US focused or like single location focused in general than like basically any other tech community. And like it's evolved interesting institutions to cope with that, like conference culture pre-COVID. Sometimes I think people ask like, hey, why are these people just going around and partying all year? But like, no, it's a mechanism that allows people to stay in touch with people in that they're ultimately collaborators with and at the same time, like live where they actually live. And so the result was that you know, like with crypto, we have these huge international networks and a lot of people from lots of different places ended up coming here. And like, that's something that's getting harder to do in either the US or a lot of other wealthy countries, right? Like we're in the middle of pretty significant anti-immigration backlash. I mean, more controversially, a backlash just against the concept of empathy toward foreign countries, which I mean, to me is really sad because I think foreign countries are the group that I think people have been not empathetic enough to pretty much for all of human history. And, you know, like in my more naive youth, I was kind of hoping that we could get beyond that. But alas, it turns out that 1991 to 2008 was an aberration. Like, I expect to see a lot of international groups basically trying to more intentionally kind of collectively choose places to make hubs for a bunch of different reasons and with different levels of intentional organization. And I could easily see that becoming more of a trend. Yeah, I was working a few years ago with a group, the Victoria Harbor Group, that was looking at doing the first iteration was the new city development for Hong Kong migrants. If you look at the period from 87 to like 93, at its peak, about 1% of the Hong Kong population was leaving every year and probably a total of like 7 8% left because that's when they formalized the handover to China. And now I haven't looked at the numbers recently, but I think it's comparable. It evolved to kind of looking at more smaller urban developments, towns, villages, but the UK is a very strict planning system. But yeah, I agree. I think as the US kind of defense umbrella withdraws from around the world, you'll see places where regional hegemons like Russia, Saudi Arabia, Iran begin to reassert themselves. And that's going to cause life in those places for a lot of people to become quite uncomfortable. And they're going to look for safe havens and to move those safe havens mm -hmm. to try to preserve a degree of their kind of culture identity. Yeah. One other kind of tangent that Zuzalu has caused me to think a lot more about is just like the scale of agglomeration. Mm. Like historically, I tend to think about like you can look at agglomeration different units. Like one is the nation state, right? So large nation states tend to have larger internal markets that benefits them because people can become more specialized and productive. Also cities, right? You have cities that have large internal markets. It's kind of the point of a city. You've got a large labor market. People can become more specialized and they can become more productive. There's more idea sharing. Then you have this instantiate in different cities in different ways, right? Like San Francisco, obviously for tech for a long time, it was like conventional wisdom. It's changed a little bit over the last few years. But if you were a founder, you had to be in San Francisco. If you want to act, you have to be in LA. And I think what Zuzalu is kind of demonstrating is maybe this is a filtering of the kind of internet community, the better matching pattern is it's possible to have very, very powerful agglomerations on a much smaller scale. I think so. Absolutely. One of the ways that I looked at this, so before about the last two years, I've spent a bunch of time in like various towns that have surprisingly small populations, right? So uh, Long Yearbien in Svalbard, right? The northernmost significant settlement in the world, 3,000 people. One of the best sushi restaurants I've ever been to, but still, you know, 3,000 people. Then some different like ski towns in Colorado, like 1,000 people, you know, like surf towns in Mexico and Latin America that more generally that have, you know, like between like 2,000 and 8,000 people. And those kinds of places are, they were still pleasant for me to be in, right? 
And I think the kind of historical picture of agglomeration is like, if you're interesting and you're in an 8,000 person town, then like you're going to want to move somewhere bigger. And like that could easily still be true for someone who kind of hasn't chosen what their specialty is, who still sort of has their empty talents tree and hasn't decided to go this way or this way or this way yet. But the trope is like San Francisco is the place you're supposed to like move to for three years and then you find your thing, right? But like the thing with the small towns is that if you can find the small town that has the thing and the people that you want, that's like a totally great experience, right? And like for me, it was like, I was not even going to, to the surf towns to surf, right? Like I was going to the surf towns because there just happened to be a group of my own friends there. And like there's different kinds of agglomeration effects that matter. There's like basic infrastructure of a type that everyone needs, right? But for that type of basic infrastructure, like the minimum sizes in a lot of cases are much smaller than we think, like low thousands makes total sense, right? And if you even just do the math, like Longyearbyen population of 3000, it has a school. Does it make sense to have a school? Well, divide 3000 by, let's say, age of 100, get 30 people per year. That's like enough to have one big class per grade in a school. So, and then it has an airport, you know, it has like basic hospital, big grocery store, a lot of different things. But the thing that it doesn't have is like specialization, right? Like the thing with New York City is like you have specialization for everything. Are you in DeFi? There's stuff in New York for you. Are you a Chinese foodie? There's lots of stuff in New York for you. Are you a Nepal foodie? There's probably stuff for you, despite Nepal being a very small country, right? And, you know, are you an Indian in crypto and like you just wants to have that community? There's lots of people for that too, right? It's just like it's big enough that it has some of everything. And like Zuzalu with, you know, 200 people is not going to be that. But what it is going to be is like it can be a, a hub for a few things, right? So the other model, like actually, aside from like the smaller, those like, small villages uh, that is kind of an inspiration is university towns, right? And like university towns are, I think, they're interesting because they sort of show both the strengths in that like Ithaca, where Cornell is, population 30,000, and lots of academics like do frontier research from out of there and totally enjoy living there. But at the same time, like the usual kind of counter argument against these places is that 90% of the population is transient and like people don't start families and like how do they fit into the long term? And I'll obviously admit that Zuzul has not solved that problem. And like, I don't think it's decided whether or not it's going to solve that problem, but it still shows some things. Like it shows kind of the difference between these kind of generic network effects and these really special purpose ones. And the special purpose ones, yeah, they do have a lot of value. Yeah. I mean, one thing that's, I don't know if this has struck you as well, but like when I finished graduate school, I was very unattracted to like teaching at a small school in a small town. My impression is 30, 40 years ago, that was seen as people like me would have perhaps enjoyed that a lot more, but it felt like the draw of living in a kind of large city was a lot stronger than it had been in the past. Part of that might have just been because I hadn't found my tribe per se, and I was worried about my kind of search function in a much smaller area. But I did get a bit of that feeling. One question to, I guess, continue one of these threads is, why Montenegro? Hmm. So I first got introduced to Montenegro last year, where basically a friend of an Ethereum researcher invited me to come and the government was also very interested in chatting and we chatted a bunch about potential things around the crypto or doing a crypto law and they seemed very interested in being welcoming and i think it was a combination of like being in a place where i just happened to have contacts that could do logistics for this kind of thing practically and i think potentially you know long-term potential for a, you know, very positive and productive relationship between Montenegro and like both, you know, crypto and other tech communities and kind of wanting to explore the possibilities of that. Yeah, so you've mentioned, I guess, Zuzalu hasn't figured out whether it wants to be permanent or scale, but that is something I've been thinking a lot about, right? If you look at the places of very high talent density, the governments often don't even like that talent density. I mean, you have San Francisco where the government is actively hostile to the tech community. New York, a lot of people are actively hostile to finance. LA feels a bit different. There isn't as much hate for like acting, but thinking about, all right, how do you get these kind of permanent talent agglomerations? What does that look like? As you know, I'm working on a project in the Caribbean. And one of the things that Zuzalu is kind of 
helped really clarify. I think we had a relatively good economic plan, start with kind of hospitality tourism and then transition into attracting talented people who want to come to the U.S., but because of the U.S. restrictive visa system, you go to Google and say, you're hiring 10,000 H-1Bs, you only get 2,000. Open a campus here for 500 people, we guarantee everybody gets a visa, drives kind of long-term economic and population dynamics. But how you actually get that subculture of people pushing the frontier that are doing really interesting things, I think it only really needs to be 1% to 2% of the population, but the impact can be tremendous. And how do you kind of plant that seed and then Let's call it, you can't be a carpenter, but you can be a gardener to kind of encourage it to grow over time. Hmm. Yeah, I think in terms of like creating communities in a new place, like this is something that's very not amenable to like, you know, a stereotyped kind of McKinsey cookie cutter approach. Like there is no $900 an hour consulting manual for how to build a community. And I think the reason why is that it just very fundamentally relies on this local knowledge, which is difficult to condense into a simplified form. Like it basically requires kind of like yourself as the creator having claws into the community. Like for myself, I mean, and I obviously know a whole bunch of crypto people. I've also been a nomad for, I think, 9.9 years now. My 10th nomading anniversary is June 5th, so it's coming up pretty soon. And so I ended up knowing all these different European communities, you know, like the Ethereum Chinese community, you know, like you know, people from India and like all of these other places. Like literally three months before this, I went to a rationality meetup in Vienna and I invited some of them to come and they did. And they, I feel like they've been giving some pretty valuable kind of contributions and sort of injecting that spike of intellectual diversity while they're here. But it's like, those are not things that I would have been able to do if like I had not actually spent a decade being part of all of these places, right? And I think one of the ways in which it shows is that I feel like the longevity side has probably realistically been like the weaker side of this compared to the crypto side. And this, I think one of the ways to explain part of that, I think, is just uh, like for myself, I've been a supporter of longevity technology since I read Aubrey's book when I was 13. But my relationship with them has always been like, I believe that you're doing amazing stuff. And if I have some money and I'm going to give some money because I think your cause is morally important, but otherwise, like, I just did not have the time to like really become a full-time member of those communities. And I think like, if I had, I would have, I think clearly been able to invite much more people and like, you know, like make the, all of the different sides of the health thing, like, I think like even more of a success that they have been so far. And then, you know, branching out into other communities like the further you branch out from yourself the more the thing just kind of unavoidably becomes artificial and yeah so that's i guess the thing that i would probably advise city founders like a level like the gold tier is like stick to your passion and then silver tier is if you decide that something that is not your passion but you have intellectual arguments for why it's important to your project then like put someone on your core team for whom that is their passion yeah, I mean, I think that's right. I think one of the other interesting elements is a lot of people have been talking about community first for city projects. But to me, kind of the community and the city development, they go a little bit hand in hand, yeah. right? I mean, here there are these overlapping communities, these overlapping networks, and they've only really instantiated in this particular point in this particular time to build something kind of unique. And so there are some historic communities, for example, the Mennonites, there's populations of them right now in Paraguay. They're German, then went to Russia, then Canada and Paraguay, because they basically want somewhere where they could live and do their own thing. That was a community that existed that had very, very strong social ties. When all these communities are basically overlapping networks of slightly weaker social ties, and right, the instantiation of them is really dependent on particularly coordination in particular places in particular times, and kind of co-evolving that with kind of a broader set of what these projects might be, I think is something that tends to be a little bit underemphasized. Right. Yeah, I think like the problem with going city first without the community aspects, like I think this is probably from what I'm noticing, like one of the traps that kind of Prospera has uh, fallen into, right? That they're uh, like they've put in a huge amount of hard intellectual work on like figuring out this, you know, really fancy libertarian, contractarian inspired governance structure stuff and actually having a location. But then, yeah, in terms of like creating the community, it's something that like they're it seems like they have like really started realizing the value of and started building more, but it was kind of more of a delayed thing. And I think like the challenge is if you 
have something that has like that infrastructure and jurisdictional appeal without a community filter, then like you have two risks. I mean, one is that it just like not many people will show up because like people want to be around a community. The other like kind of more negative risk is that you'll end up basically becoming an attractor for like very unsavory people because like those are, you know, they're looking for places to do stuff too. And like, if you don't have a culture that can be a sort of a barrier against that, then like those kinds of cultures are often cultures that end up forming. And I think like we do see that in at least some of these like rich people oriented, finance oriented cities around the world, especially those that kind of compete on very low taxes and all of those things. Like it, I mean, it doesn't always happen, but sometimes. And then the problem with like community first and like real stuff never is that regardless of what you tell your community, the selection function of the community building process is going to be very different from like what you're actually looking for in terms of getting people who are willing to like actually move and actually be loyal contributors to the new thing that you're trying to build, right? And like, it's not even just about the people. It's like also about the types of interactions between people that you create, right? Like at Zozolo, like things that have been created are like self-organized clubs for like cooking like hot pot or like cooking Ukrainian food or karaoke or hiking. People organizing together to like cook food and uh, at, for each other at larger scales. People, you know, organizing together to do like a particular activity. It's like things that they actually need in this format. I'm organizing to teach each other even, right? And like those are the kinds of connections that get like there are connections that need to be built and strengthened over time for stuff like that to happen. And those are very different than the kinds of connections that you get if instead you're like, let's say, organizing just regular meetups in you know, top tier American cities for a few years, right? So there needs to be a kind of spiritual continuity between the thing that you're doing in the early stages and the thing that you eventually want to do in the later stages. Yeah, I think that's important. I think that's one of the challenges of thinking about how these things scale as well as how they interact with local communities on the ground. Because the thing is, there is no land in the world that is really terra nullis, at least that is livable. And so identifying like, okay, you are bringing a community of people to a place, but there are people already there, right? How do you interact with the people already there? How do you make sure you can coordinate with them, kind of build on their culture, bring your own culture and create a positive dynamic, as well as something that's built in. If you look at most cities, right? In San Francisco, less than 10%. I've seen figures, 8% of people work in tech. Mm -hmm. Think about the number of people who work in tech that actually do interesting things. Mm -hmm. It's probably at most 10% of those. Yeah. So looking at less than 1% of San Francisco, which is arguably the most interesting city in the world, actually doing interesting work. So right, how do you build these subcultures that are layered on local communities and then layered on new communities that might not have the same mm -hmm. values and goals but are necessary to the function of a actual city project? Mm -hmm. Yeah, the interacting with the local community question is, I think, an important one. It's a challenging one because you have to approach the question in a way that makes sense. Like, what is your actual motive? Like, I think if your motive is to kind of check a virtue signaling box that says we're locals friendly, then like that's something that can like very easily fail or at least not really get very far. Like in general, like if people are here in order to interact with other people that have particular interests, then like, I mean, the ideal would be if there's like some locals that have those existing interests already, but otherwise, like you need to find some kind of natural symbiosis that already exists. And yeah, that's a challenge. Yeah. I mean, I th the way I think about it, at least if you're in areas that have relatively small populations, given a lot of these interests are relatively niche. You might not find people that share those interests, but you might find people that can share those interests. Or you might find people who, even if they don't share those interests, they still value some of the benefits that the community are bringing because it might be a historically economically depressed area. And so they're happy to engage because it means more jobs. It means more business for their restaurants or whatever it might be. And they see kind of the vibrancy that that community brings. And so the way I think about it is if you want to make it long-term scalable and sustainable, building in those positive interactions from the beginning. And some of it's going to be a little bit tricky because Uzalu, for example, has unusual people. And so how do you bring that unique culture? You don't want to dilute it. Then how do you do that while also having kind of not just box checking, but meaningful substantive engagement with the local community that says, look, we are here. We understand that this is your community, but we want to be a part of your community. 
And we want to kind of build on this over time. And together, we think we can build something beautiful. Mm -hmm. I think I definitely agree with that. Yeah. And I think one of the other things that I've been thinking about is just seeing, as you mentioned earlier, how the waves of visitors affect the Zuzalu culture, as well as how the status hierarchies begin to kind of change and shift a little bit, right? Because Zuzalu is spread basically entirely through word of mouth. And so a lot of the early people were just like, oh, this seems cool. I'm a little bit bored. I'm going to go hang out here for a while. And then as the word of mouth spreads, you get people who are like, oh, this is awesome. Like, I want to come. And they already have like high status in the default world. And so when they bring that, they bring some of that status here, which changes the kind of egalitarian nature of Zuzalu, because you do want this open idea sharing. You get people who everybody else naturally flocks to just because of their ideas or potential funding sources or whatever it might be, right? You start to get that change. So have you thought about how, like, yeah, the status hierarchies change in Zuzalu and other similar communities over time and how to kind of keep that openness while not, you don't really want to exclude the highest status people, but building a culture in that can really help preserve some of that openness. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think one of the things that's contributed to Zerzolo's success is like the unusual filters, one might say. Like if you want to stay here full time, you have to be willing to dedicate two months of your life to the thing. If you want to even visit, you have to be willing to survive uh, what's a realistic way a 17 hour flight, you know, including the various connections. You know, you have to be willing to accept changes to your lifestyle and all of these things. And those are filters that a lot of people who are at least pa like passionately attached to the cause can definitely pass through. The kinds of people who are like people who are more on the low effort parasitic side are, I think, like the number one group to try to kind of keep away entirely. And I feel like we've been much more successful at that here than we could have been had this been 10 kilometers away from a major U.S. city or something like that. But yeah, I think the challenge comes, with, I think, closer to what you were saying, like on the boundary, right? Like people where there might even be a disagreements within the community about like how desirable is a person to include and then you know like once a person is already in then like you know do kind of power differences or even kind of cultural things other than power differences from the outside world sort of end up inevitably trickling in i feel like zuzula has not been around long enough to really give good answers to that question yet Right. Like, I think if it starts, you know, being like round two and round three, then we'll start seeing that appear. The closest things that we have to solutions so far, I think, I mean, actually, some of the kind of like explicit voting and like community aggregation stuff that we've done. I mean, the zero knowledge polls, the zoo polls are one example, but also like we've used Polis, we've used like FigJam and just various tools like that. And they're kind of let people bring their preferences through in a way that's kind of disintermediated and doesn't pass through gatekeepers is like one of those things that can help resist some gatekeepers that are getting too powerful and too misaligned with the community. Community norms are important. And I think having explicit norms against domineering in certain ways is good. So far, like I felt like we haven't really needed that explicitly yet because that hasn't come to be a problem yet but like the norms that we have had are like around respecting privacy for example right and like i think one of the ways in which you can see how that succeeded is well ironically enough because it started failing a bit more recently and that's because well we had a control group right like people were we did a better job of telling people the norms at the beginning but then people coming in more recently there's more short-term stayers and also like there haven't been like orientation sessions or like really any opportunities for people to just like understand that this is what the norms are and as a result like i notice myself getting bothered with selfie requests somewhat more for example which is like it's unfortunate for me i kind of hope to have fewer selfies but it's also an interesting barometer and then you know more and more twitter dynamics though i feel like we've kind of officially surrendered to being on twitter once autism capital yelled at us last <laughs> week <laughs> yeah but, um, yeah so i guess it's a it's a long-term question that i think is like hard to pre-answer before the patterns actually start showing up but i totally agree it's super important to be vigilant about it yeah and i think one of the interesting things here these for example, compared to Balaji's vision, which has a much more kind of default tech founder type CEO early that really drives thing. And this is much more community oriented. 
So how do you balance, right? You need to set up these filters, you need these mechanisms, but you also want the community to be really engaged and lead. So how do you think about the role of, for example, being a gardener versus being a carpenter versus like something a little bit in between about what that community emergence looks like and what kind of your function and the function of other organizers is? I feel like given my psychology, it's easy because I'm just like too lazy to be like a real, like a, you know, a real like you know, 80 hour a week grind set CEO or like whatever it is that like those Twitter self-help people tell you you have to do to be an alpha male. Like this was even true in the Ethereum Foundation, you know, and it's like I ended up just being pretty early to just to delegate lots of stuff to other people. And like, I definitely made lots of mistakes in that process. And the Ethereum Foundation had a complicated history. And I think it took a long time to like really stabilize and turn into the like friendly thing that it is now. But that's probably the realistic answer why like I would be bad at being a dictator. Of course, there are like, as we discovered in the Ethereum Foundation, there's the risk that like, people other than me will start accumulating power and becoming a dictator. And one of the things that we made sure to do for round one is we made sure to intentionally push against the meme of a core team. Like we tried to like intentionally de-emphasize that concept and try to sort of deny its existence to some extent. And like there definitely like there is an extent to which doing that too much can kind of like push toward dishonesty. But I think the reason why you want to do that and the reason this is the reason why I think like I'm not really a fan of like the tyranny of structuralist viewpoint. Like I think structuralist does have a lot of anti-tyranny value is that it caps the legitimacy that like any of these unintentional tyrannies might have, right? It makes it much easier to say like, okay, this mechanism is misaligned with our values, like screw this, let's replace it, right? Because the people you're replacing don't have anything to point to that uh, like creates an agreement that there is like any expectation at all that just because they were there for round one, they're going to be there for the long term. And like, that's not a mechanism that can last forever, but I think for early stage and kind of experimental stage things, just doing things like that is often really helpful. And aside from that, I think I was intentionally like pushing back against other forms of formalized power. So like one or two people ask like, hey, will there be a coin? And I'm like, no, there will not be a coin. <laughs> I mean, I should have maybe answered ETH as the coin. Zoo but coin. <laughs> yeah. Okay, someone wanted to do ZooCoin for like, not as like a long-term speculative thing, but as like, like short-term kind of exchanging favors token, which would be fun to experiment with. But I think like, a lot of people would speculate on it anyway. <laughs> right. So, well, there's like ways you can like create games to cut that out, right? For Like you can add a rule that allows arbitrary people to send transactions to print a million units of the coin starting June 1st. Like, obviously, if a coin community forms, they can just like clone it and fork that out. But like you can, the default pressure works against them. You know, like an often default pressure is like, you know, three fifths of the battle. So what's next for Zuzalu? This is still in the process of, I think, being thought through. But I think in terms of what we've learned, People want there to be a future of Zozolo, therefore there will be a future of Zozolo. We did a polis session at the very beginning, and one of the questions was, if there was one next year, would you come? There were zero no votes, which was, I thought, a really positive sign. It was like, okay, this will keep going with or without us. The question is, what, what is the role that we want to have in it, right? And some of the other learnings, I think, like realizing the kind of divergence in vision based on different goals. The fact that, you know, a longevity city and a nomad village have fundamentally different tasks is probably one example. Like there is practical limits there. And one of the other things that I'm being mindful of is like there's social limits to like what kinds of people will be willing to be part of the same tribe. Like if you think about like health and longevity as an objective, like that attracts many different kinds of people, right? Like the way that I think of the three health tribes of this uh, kind of brings out my like vaguely Balaji style meme version of myself. There's three tribes of health. You're either on team steak or you're on team kale or you're on team Metformin. So like, you know, Zuko is, and like his carnivores are a good example of team steak. And then yoga, wellness retreats, focusing on like organic and naturalness and all of those things, you know, team kale. And then team Metformin is let's, you know, go full on radical technology, right? And team is like being a bit facetious because like, I don't think these groups have to like be opposed to each other or anything. They're like more, you know, three approaches and there's like some combination of kind of beliefs and vibes. But like one example is a lot of people on Team Metformin, especially people doing large scale stuff, are 
connected to Peter Thiel, and a lot of people on Team Kale think that Peter Thiel is evil, right? Like, that's already a moral difference. And, like, things like that are another one of the reasons why I'm kind of wanted to be more cautious about, like, saying that we'll do everything and expanding quickly. Like, I definitely don't want to just, like, go around and give random groups the freedom to, like, use the Zuzalu name and, like, say that they're part of the project and all of those things. Yeah, so this is like a reason why I don't want to just, like, expand the thing rapidly and let, you know, like a whole bunch of people start saying that they're a part of the project. And it's also a reason why, like, I'm, like, I would kind of love to see there just be spinoffs and groups that kind of take more different approaches to things. And like, I think there is value in nudging them, right? Like I think like on the bio side, like I personally would love to like, you know, even help nudge, you know, more of this more radical bio community to be willing to like adopt some, let's say a patent covenant that prevents them from enforcing it in poor countries. Like that's one of those 8020s that actually Balvi, the anti-COVID effort that I'm a part of that was funded by the dog money two years ago, like generally it insisted on full open source, but in a couple of cases where it was not able to just give the full amount of money because it was too large. And so like it negotiated for this like more partial thing where basically said it's like a covenant to not enforce their patents during emergencies or in poor countries. And like if you look at the history of pharma and biotech, a lot of the worst kind of moral disasters of the, you know, US focused or based corporate pharma industry have been like basically around, you know, essentially enforcing patent rights, even in places where like they're not even selling the thing. And so they're basically causing, you know, huge numbers of people to die for like very tiny amounts of money. And like just kind of kneecapping that and saying like, you know, if he wants to be part of this, like, you know, you have to like agree to that kind of covenant that like takes off at most 10% of your profit, but like it takes off, you know, like 80% of the risk in terms of like the worst moral consequences of that system, right? So like that would be a, a case for trying to keep things together. Like when things are in the bubble, like you can them to be better actors. But at the same time, there are places where people's values do kind of diverge a lot. And like even places where people's values diverge a lot in a way in which like I personally find myself in the middle of the dispute, you know, so I think a lot of pluralism is inevitable. And like, I think, you know, some kind of structure as the thing expands to a larger size and like figuring out exactly what that means. Like, I think that'll be really interesting to think through. Great. Thank you very much, Vitalik. This has been The Forecast, a podcast of Bravo Cities. I'm Mark Lutter. You can follow me at Twitter at Mark Lutter. Thanks very much. Thanks so much for listening. We love engaging with our listeners, so please always feel free to reach out. Contact information is listed in the show notes. To find out more about the work of the Charter Cities Institute, please follow us on social media or visit chartercitiesinstitute.org.